Our scripture passage this morning um, begins in Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 13, and then all the way through chapter 53. Reading from the English Standard Version translation. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand." Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your uh, spirit to be the one guiding us into the truth that we find in this passage. Lord God, we know that we are to come before you in humble dependence upon your grace, the grace to know and to understand Scripture, the grace to have Scripture teach us and instruct us in your ways. 
the grace also to find our lives uh, wonderfully influenced, affected, motivated by your word. That we can be those who live for the sake of the glory of Christ. And in this world, to our generation, be salt and light. This we would pray for in Christ's name. Amen. Now, of all the passages in Isaiah, especially of the four servant song passages, this is the most famous. Um, It's the one that's most quoted or referred to by New Testament writers, at least some ten times specifically, they quote out of this passage. And then, in terms of the rest of the New Testament, there are echoes of this passage and allusions to this passage at least 40 times. It's also the case that the early church fathers regularly used this passage to show that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and that in Christ God had placed the penalty for sin upon him. They recognized this passage as speaking to the very gospel of the Lord Jesus. Once again, we, as we have said before, in no other Old Testament prophet do we have as many prophecies about Christ. Uh, Isaiah excels them all. It's why many have said that Isaiah is the gospel prophet. But particularly in Isaiah 53, in this passage, we find the heart and core of the gospel presented because here is Christ, uh, the suffering servant who dies in the place of sinners. Now, if we look at the whole passage from Isaiah 52, 13 all the way through 53, uh, it is formed perfectly around five sections, and each section has three particular verses. Uh, the first section, which is in Isaiah 52, 13, 14, and 15, is really a, a kind of summary and introduction to the rest of what is said. Uh, it begins with the, the, the high point of the glory of Christ, that he's going to be high and lifted up. But then immediately it goes into how he's going to be opposed and rejected by men. Something's going to happen to his appearance that it becomes horrendous in the way he appears to people. Yet nevertheless, in terms of what happens to him, he's going to sprinkle many nations so that those nations and their kings wind up being astounded over a story they had never heard before which comes to their attention and impacts and transforms and changes virtually everything. That's the introduction. But that introduction properly reflects this theme. Suffering unto glory, or to put it this way, the path to the glory of Christ is through suffering. Christ suffering unto glory. But in the rest of Isaiah 53, that theme is expanded to tell us that the glory which Christ is going to ultimately receive begins with the glory that he leaves coming into this world in a manner of humility, but then humiliation, in a manner in which he is stricken by God and afflicted, in a manner in which his suffering is connected to sin such that sin our sin laid upon him, so that as he suffers these things, he experiences the injustices of men responding to them meekly while he dies. And yet, after his death, the scriptures tell us 
that the will of God is going to prosper in his hand, there's a resurrection of Christ unto glory that takes place. Now the heart of that grand story, the main point of all that grand story, focuses upon the suffering of Christ, which we see principally presented to us, the heart and soul of the gospel, from verses 1 through verses 9. Three particular themes dominate in those passages. The first of which is the humility and the humiliation of Christ. Uh, The second is the suffering and the sacrifice of Christ. And the third is the meekness in the faces of the injustices which Christ faces. And that's what we're going to focus upon as we consider this passage this morning. The overall theme, what begins in glory takes the path of suffering to ascend to that glory once again. But in that suffering of Christ is that old, old story of our salvation. What brings Christ's ultimate glory brings us salvation in his name. So I want to look at the first three verses. I want us to consider his humility, but then his humiliation. Now, if you consider verse 1, verse 1 says this, Who has believed our message, or who has believed what uh, he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, that speaks to the fact that when Jesus came into this world, there was a prevailing unbelief with respect to his coming, both in terms of his birth, but also in terms of his beginning his ministry when he was 30 years of age. Many passages in the gospel accounts would actually show fulfillment of this idea, who has believed our report. But certainly what we read this morning in Matthew chapter 2 illustrates this properly. The Magi come. It's a miraculous uh, trip that they have come from the eastern regions, probably from Persia. They've been following a celestial object, this star. Uh, They have read this star as signaling to them the one who is to be born the king of the Jews. And so they make this pronouncement in Jerusalem. It comes to the ears of Herod the king and all of Jerusalem. And what is the response? Uh, Yes, Herod signals for the chief priests and the scribes to come. Where is this Christ, this king of the Jews, supposed to be born? And they say, yes, in Bethlehem. And what does Herod do? He sends the wise men there. He says, in order that I may come to worship him, but his real motive is in order that he might kill them. Do we recognize the unbelief? Do we recognize that that, that who has believed our message is actually fulfilled in the response of Herod, in the response of the scribes and the chief priests, in the response of all of Jerusalem? They're troubled, they're disturbed, But do they go to find the Christ child and to recognize him for who he is? No. And Herod's response is to have all of the young boy children, two two years of age and younger, in all the regions of Bethlehem, uh, put to the sword. The appearance of Christ is in that kind of unbelief when he comes into the world. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed at that time? Just the Magi. On that particular occasion, just the Magi. 
Now we go to verse 2 and we read this. For he, meaning Christ, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. That's a key word. Thinking of Christ as a king. He had no majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now this speaks to the poverty, the insignificance, the the very humbleness in which Christ came. The, as we would say from a worldly sense, the unattractiveness of his coming. There was nothing in the coming of Christ, nothing in his birth, nothing in his life up to the point that he inaugurates his ministry. There was nothing there that would in any worldly sense commend this young man to the world. It's like growing up and coming out of Oildale. There's nothing there that's going to naturally commend people to who that person is. Uh, Christ, in this sense, was unattractive to the world in the way the world prizes those who are supposed to be attractive. The movers and the shakers and the rich and the famous and, and those of royal blood. None of that was ever imputed to Christ during the time that he was, in fact, growing up. An undistinguished life growing up in an undistinguished little village of Nazareth in the undistinguished regions of Galilee. This is the humbleness and the humility of his coming. But there's a transition at verse 3. The transition in verse 3 is profound. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Here's the transition. From a humble appearance into a world of humiliation that dehumanizes his appearance. Let me say that again. From a, from a humility of his first appearance into the world, we see what now takes place is a transition into an experience of such humiliation that his actual appearance is dehumanized. Now, how do we see that? Well, notice, to be humiliated is far worse than to be humble. Uh, it's far worse than being overlooked as an insignificant human being to be treated and rejected by your fellow human beings as though you're not worthy of anything but the greatest amount of contempt. Now, this speaks to the reality of what happens to Jesus at his time of trial, at the time between when he's arrested uh, late Thursday night until he's put upon the cross. Christ's fellow human beings see him being dehumanized by the Roman soldiers. The gospel accounts give us great detail of this. The prophet Isaiah says that in essence, people turn away from the visual appearance of Christ being repulsed by it, being revolted by it, rather than having compassion. Uh, the words of the scripture says he was, they esteemed him not. But if you look closely, the voice of Isaiah the prophet is, we esteemed him not. 
the voice of Isaiah the prophet reflects the disciples of Jesus. Those who were closest to Jesus, the followers of Jesus. At the point that Jesus is taken on the path of suffering, the Via Dolorosa up to the cross and then crucified, the disciples have scattered. They themselves could not esteem him for who he was. The men who should have stood with Christ failed to do so. Now, what does this tell us with respect to culture and the Christian life? There's a choice. Increasingly, that choice is before us as Christians in our culture. Uh, we, we face a culture that increasingly despises Jesus Christ. Will we identify with the world in its rejection of Christ? Or will we stand with Christ when he is rejected by the world? The Christmas season makes that a viable issue to think about. In any number of ways, the commercialization of Christmas, the avoidance of Jesus Christ by the world at Christmas, is a means by which they are rejecting the Christ that we ought to stand with and stand by. And so we go through the season. To stand with the world is to celebrate the season just like the world celebrates the season. And to stand with Jesus is to understand the meaning of this season and to celebrate it differently. Now moving on then to the second part of this passage, verses 4 through 6. The suffering and sacrifice of Christ for others. <clears throat> Verse 4 through 6. The familiar words, I hope. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was fierced for, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, what is described here is the dehumanizing treatment that Christ receives at the same time presented as the very means whereby Christ fulfills his divine purpose that God has given to him to suffer and to be sacrificed for the sins of others. Look at the very significant truths about the atonement that are stated in these three verses. First, Christ bears our sorrows and griefs. Second, yet it's God who afflicts Christ. God strikes, God smites. Thirdly, this piercing and crushing, this chastisement and wounding are for our transgressions and our iniquities to bring us peace and to make us healed. And then fourthly, 
We are sheep gone astray. But God lays on Christ our iniquity. Thus we are the sinners. But he bears our sin and is punished in our place. This train of thought written uh, 2,700 years ago as part of literature that you find in the ancient Near Eastern world, but that ancient world, this description has no parallel at all in all of the other religions and in all of the other ancient writings that we find. There is no parallel to any of this. Nowhere do we have a story like this where the living God offers up his servant, his own son, as the atoning sacrifice for those sins which separate human beings from God, to sep that separates those who've gone astray. Nowhere in all of ancient literature do we have such a story that God reconciles lost and straying sheep to himself through the death of his own son. And of course, the New Testament takes this story as the ultimate premier demonstration of God's love toward us. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And, while that, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or 1 John 4.10 And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now this is the heart of the message of Christmas. This is the gift that the Father has given. But we can't receive it unless we identify with those sheep that have gone astray unless we identify as those who have gone their own way, unless we identify as those who need their sins atoned, unless we identify as those who need Christ more than anything else at all. Only if we identify with the lost sheep will we understand the meaning of Christmas. In the third section, verses 7 through 9. Concerning the meekness of Christ in the face of injustice, we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the affliction of my people, the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. These verses show how Christ faced the injustices that were done to him, and he did so with utter meekness. He's taken by oppression, he is afflicted. Judgment is rendered against him, even though there's no deceit in his mouth. 
Christ doesn't even open his mouth in his own defense. And he never gives back in the manner in which he himself is dealt with. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, refers to this that is going on with Christ when he says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. But Peter says this, in light of Jesus being our example. For in the preceding verse, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This, too, is at the heart of the message of Christmas. We don't really embrace this message unless we identify even here with Christ. Will Christ be our true guide in how we treat other human beings, even when they've done us harm? Only if we follow in the steps of Christ will we fully understand the meaning of Christmas. Now the conclusion, verses 10, 11, and 12, which returns us to the themes that were found at the introduction. Suffering that leads to glory. So verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Just take a moment here. And go back to Genesis 3.15. What was the original promise that God made to Adam and Eve even as he's placing his curses upon the world and upon the serpent? The seed of the woman shall crush the serpent's head, but the serpent shall bruise his heel. Uh, the word bruise can also mean crush in that Genesis 3 passage. Uh, we, we tie that into what is said here. Even as the serpent is behind from the standpoint of what human beings do, taking Christ to the cross, and, of course, human sin, putting Christ upon the cross. Yet, we read here in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of God to bruise his son and to put him to grief. Yet, it says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So in verse 10, God wills to put Christ to death as a guilt offering, an offering for sin. Yet afterwards, we're told, Christ will see his offspring. That is, Christ will see the fruit of what he's done. The will of God will be prospered in Christ's hand, it says. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous as he will bear their iniquities. So God wills for his servant to bear the iniquities of the many for their justification. Yet, after Christ does this, after Christ dies, he shall yet see and be satisfied 
because his work will bring about the justification of many. Verse 12. Therefore, God speaking, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Verse 12 tells us, God rewards Christ after he pours out his life unto death. And Christ himself distributes the spoil of his sin-bearing death to all of those who are strong in God. All these final verses contain the idea of the resurrection of Christ after his death. After Christ suffers, he will live again to prosper the will of God. So these final verses uh, give to us that which we saw in the opening part of this passage. The suffering of Christ is the path to glory. His suffering for sinners, dying in our place, is his very path to his great exaltation and glory. So we look around at the world. The world wants to celebrate Christmas in a way that actually tries to escape, at least temporarily, uh, the world's evil and darkness, uh, to deny how bad the world is, uh, to avoid looking at how the world is racked with violence and hatred and suffering and darkness, and to do so uh, normally with ignoring everything and giving gifts, ignoring everything and drinking enough alcohol to make it easier to ignore everything that's bad. But true Christians celebrate Christmas while facing the darkness. We see Christ beyond the cradle looking to the cross. We know that Christ has come to bring joy into the world, to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. But the one who is in the cradle is the one who must go to the cross. To look into the cradle, we must ask, what child is this? And then as the hymn writer says in the third stanza, why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear. For sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nail, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. And as Charles Wesley wrote, looking to Good Friday and Easter, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite as grace, and emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Christ had to leave glory, experience the deepest humiliation, be stricken and smitten by God before he could be exalted again to glory in order to bring justification and salvation to the many. And this is our Merry Christmas. Amen. Father in heaven, we who know what it means 
to being redeemed by the blood of your Son. I give you thanks for this season. And Lord, may we follow Jesus in, in everything and in every way and continue to bear witness to the true light that has come into the world, even amidst the darkness that is all around us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.